You're listening to Commute, the podcast. Congratulations, you'll be smarter when you get there. What up? Welcome into Commute, the podcast. I'm Dave. And I'm Jay. And we are about to take you on a deep dive on three topics that we find interesting, and we're betting that you might just find them interesting, too. We can promise you this, you'll be smarter when you get there. On this edition of Commute, when we get stressed out, we look for things to turn to to help us cope, often in the form of food. Well, in the 1990s, when something big was going down, we turned to one food, and we turned to it a lot. This week, the accuracy of the pizza meter. Every year in every major sport, there's a crowned champion, and with that coveted title comes the merchandise that commemorates the winner. But whatever happens to all the shirts printed for the losing team? We don't think about it very often, you know, since we've only ever lived on Earth. But the universe is a vast and potentially dangerous place. So should we be worried about the asteroid Bennu, a.k.a. the world's most hazardous asteroid? All of that on this edition of Commute. Let's get it. Well, Jay, uh, and shout out to Commute listener, our buddy R.L. Ely, for this next topic. But what's your absolute favorite food? Okay, so not restaurant or specific person's cooking. Like, you can't say my Aunt Kim's steak hoagies or something like that. But general (laughs) favorite food item. Uh, I mean, I think every time I visit a new city or I'm just in a new place with new restaurants to try out, I do find myself always, like, wanting to try a region or a city's burger. So I'm definitely a burger guy. You know, it's kind of like... Okay, I'm in a new city. I want to find the best burger that's here. Yeah, yeah, I'd, I'd agree with that. A burger's a good one. And, and a lot of people who know me very well would probably characterize my taste buds as childish, which I wholeheartedly disagree with. My, yeah, it's I got add. some, like, seven-year-old boy energy. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I push back hard against that notion. But mine has got to be pizza. I've always loved it, and I always will love it. But today, we're not here to discuss the deliciousness of pizza. No, no, no. But instead, the potential predictive power that some folks think pizza has based on its classification as one of the best comfort foods ever created. I'll explain. (laughs) Jay, it all got a little crazy for pizza in the 1990s when people began to notice an uptick in pizza sales around major national issues. Examples abound, but some of the more notable ones are reports of the pizza deliveries to the Pentagon doubling leading up to the Panama invasion, a D.C. pizza shop who correctly predicted the launch of Operation Desert Storm in 1991, purely based on a rise in their pizza sales, and reports of a record-breaking sale day in 1994 during the famous O.J. Simpson police chase. And then there's the pizza chain Domino's. Jay, they took the psychic power of pizza to the next level in the mid-90s by releasing a short-lived annual report titled The Pizza Meter. By polling delivery drivers around America, the report claimed to offer insights into the personal and political temperature of the country. Jay, real anecdotes from the 1995 edition of the Pizza Meter Report include that people who answered the door while listening to rap music were 45% more likely to order a meat-topped pizza than non-rap listeners, 
and people who answered the door wearing polyester ordered 9% more vegetarian pizzas than those sporting natural fibers. And sometimes the pizza meter went even deeper in its reporting. One year it concluded that underwear sales must be up across the country because, yes, less people answered the door naked than the previous year. And despite it being discontinued, the idea of the pizza meter actually came back around in 2016. In 2016, Papa John's stock steadily rose through the year, and many people attributed that to the fact that we had a lot of political tension in the country with the polarizing election of former President Donald Trump. And Jay, today, predictions based on pizza may have mostly gone away in favor of more real data-driven analysis and research. And while things like the pizza meter were really never more than blatant marketing tools, I still think there's something to it. You know, there's an old adage that says something to the effect of, the best way to someone's mind is through their stomach. And Jay, some of the stories are just too hard to shrug off. Like in the days leading up to and after the Monica Lewinsky and Bill Clinton scandal broke in the 90s, Domino's set a then three-day record for sales with nearly $3,000 alone in pizza sales going to the White House. (laughs) I mean, I am guilty of this. I just eat like absolute garbage whenever I'm stressed out or whenever I'm really busy. So I totally understand. I'm right there with you. That's probably when I do my most pizza ordering is whenever I'm just in a stressed out mood or I have a lot going on at one time. So I totally Now, you know that I used to really be a mall guy. Right. Like, you you know this about me. I used to just really love the act of going to the mall. And uh, when we were in college, I especially loved going to the mall. Bad day, I'd just go to the mall and buy something. <laughs> and and my, my comfort food back then, and, and outside of my comfort activity of buying things, was to go to uh, Auntie Anne's Pretzels and uh, buy, I think it was a Parmesan pretzel. Uh, that Whenever I got stressed, I'd go buy this pretzel. That was like... 2,000 calories. I was just about to ask, what's the calorie count on that monster? Something insane. Now, tell you what, it really made bad days better. (laughs) So it does help. Destructive behavior is what we're describing right now. (laughs) So, Dave, you and I are both fans of professional sports. And you've been fans of professional sports, the NBA, the NFL, and uh, Major League Baseball for essentially your entire life. So you've seen a lot and you have your favorite teams. Uh, Is there any moment that sticks out to you as just kind of like your greatest professional sports moment ever? Like maybe a win or just your team like doing something unbelievable that's just stuck with you? So I'm a lifer. Like if I like a team, I like that team forever. I'm the total opposite of a bandwagon fan. So the Dallas Cowboys and the Atlanta Braves, I've loved both those teams since I was a little kid. Cowboys really haven't been very good since the 90s. A lot of three Super Bowls in the 90s, a lot of success. The Braves, however, have been great lately and won the World Series in 2021. So I would say probably recency bias that's got to be the greatest sports moment for me right now. I think, I think if the Cowboys won the Super Bowl in your adult life, that would probably easily replace it. It would replace it, yeah. I've come a long way in my maturity as a sports fan, I will say. I used to, when the Cowboys would inevitably lose in the playoffs, I would go outside and scream. Don't really do that anymore. <laughs> I mean, I don't know if you're that <laughs> far off of it, though, <laughs> I would say. I'd throw that caveat on there. 
Uh, when the Braves Baby won, steps. when the Braves won, did you buy a championship shirt? I did. Well, Dave, a staple part multiples. Of, <laughs> well, Dave, a staple part of your team winning a major sporting event like the Super Bowl or the World Series or the NBA Finals is the championship merchandise. Within minutes after a winner in these games, you can find shirts, hats, sweatshirts, mugs, flags, really anything you can imagine, ready to go to celebrate the winners. Now, obviously, this merchandise needs to be printed beforehand to be able to keep up with the huge demand that occurs at the end of the game. But the issue here is obvious, right? You have to print two sets of merchandise, and inevitably, one set of it can never be used because there will be a team that will not win. So then my question is, what happens to all of the championship shirts of the teams that do not win the big game? Well, there's actually a company for that. Good360, which is a charitable organization based in Alexandria, Virginia, serves as a distribution hub for all these excess goods to send to people in need around the world. We like to underscore that this is a solution that drives both social impact and human dignity by providing high-quality needed goods to those who might otherwise go without, Sherry Rudolph, Good360 Chief Development and Chief Marketing Officer, told Mental Floss, as well as a positive environmental impact by keeping usable goods out of landfills or from otherwise going to waste. So Dave, Good360 takes these goods, which can be upwards of thousands of shirts, and handles distributing them all over the world. Now, believe it or not, Dave, there actually is a market for this merchandise, too, albeit a very small one. But some people see it as a quirky and sort of niche collectible, and they do buy them. However, you cannot buy them from the official source. So you can find these online, and sometimes they filter down to flea markets and online stores. And so even though they are rare, they do sometimes trickle out of factories and into the world. As you would imagine, bitter fans of the losing team typically want nothing to do with this sort of thing, though, so they don't even try to officially sell even a small number of them. But I found myself with the question of, so even though half of these shirts get donated essentially, and that's a good thing, doesn't this not make sense from a business standpoint? Like you're telling me I have to produce a certain amount of shirts, but then I have to scrap half of them. How does that make business sense? But really, it does boil down to the revenue that can be generated around a moment and in that actual moment. If fans had to wait weeks after the event to buy the merch, sales would be significantly lower. In fact, Dave, the vast majority of all the sales of championship merchandise happen within mere hours after the event. It is actually much cheaper with that considered to manufacture it all and then take the loss in the face of such major gain, even if it seems potentially wasteful from a money standpoint. And before you get cynical and think, well, these probably just get taken and then sold overseas by people, Good360 does report that they have a strict policy to ensure that this specific thing does not happen and that the merchandise actually does end up in the hands of someone in need. But Dave, I just think it's pretty interesting that all of this potential waste can actually be put to good use. And it's really sad, though. So if you look up pictures, like I just looked up pictures of the Patriots 19-0 and t-shirts. <laughs> so uh, when the Giants beat the New England Patriots to uh, ruin their perfect season, it's all these kids like at an orphanage and they're, uh, they're wearing the shirts and someone's passing out the hats to them and they're all just very <laughs> excited to get them. So from a clothing standpoint, yes, it's great. The charity's great. Yeah, as a Patriots fan, you're very conflicted looking at that image, I would imagine. 
Yeah, and all the kids are cheering. <laughs> what could have been? They're cheering as they receive their shirts. But then you're also not a terrible person, so you're like, well, I guess this is a good thing, <laughs> but I'm also selfishly kind of mad. It just awakens all kinds of bad feelings and, and every, just everything across the board. You're right, though. You can buy a Patriots 19 no t-shirt. But it is so uh, 24.99. I spent so long trying to hunt down losing championship t-shirts. They are so hard to find. Like the only way you can find them is if somebody just like stole one from the production uh, of it, like the factory, and then they just sold it to their friend or something, and it's just been passed around and it's in a flea market. <laughs> oh yeah, like like, that. like these are reprints. <laughs> these aren't the originals. Oh yeah, the originals are almost near impossible to find. The originals are like trying to locate a uh, peanut, the royal blue elephant, which is the most rare of Beanie Babies. Which you had, like you, by the way. I, I no, actually, peanut was the only one I didn't have. Oh okay. It's the uh, only I mean, you weren't Beanie missing Baby. much. He, he'd be worth like six dollars <laughs> today or something. So it's probably fine. <laughs> And finally, Jay, like any great friendship and partnership, you and I agree on a lot, but we also often disagree. And that's okay. I mean, you can be wrong from time to time. Like, you personally, that's fine. I won't hold it against you. Okay. One such (laughs) instance, though, Jay, is with a movie that released a few years ago called Don't Look Up. You were a big fan, correct? Yes, I was a big fan. And I'm going to guess that you're gonna say that you weren't yeah i thought it was great just commentary on like society and like the absurdity of just the world trying to face a real danger which is something that we do and we seem to just haven't been able to get right as a society just on the planet when facing danger together and i felt like the idea of don't look up which is the idea that an asteroid is coming to earth and it's got um, several months before it hits Earth. So there's things that w- there's steps that we can take to try to solve it, but it just shows the, the unwillingness of people on the planet to come together and actually stop it, which I felt like was very real commentary. And I thought it was really funny too, like great dialogue, great lines. Yeah, a movie can be good commentary and not be very good. So you're wrong. Uh, disappointing movie, <laughs> not very good. Could have and should have been great. Was not great, but I do love the plot. The plot's interesting. So as Jay just said, if you haven't seen it or you're unfamiliar with Don't Look Up, an asteroid is heading for Earth. We know about it, though, and plenty of time to do something about it and stop it. But the country is divided. Half the people in the country think that it's a big deal. The other half think it's fake and it's never going to happen. I'll let you watch it or Google the ending to see what ultimately happens. But, Jay, I've been thinking about that movie because of the recent arrival of a space sample from the NASA OSIRIS-REx mission. Are you familiar? Uh, I saw the headline, but I did not read too close because, and I'm guessing that you're going to tell me this is wrong, but anytime I click on these that are like, an asteroid's going to come close to Earth, I click on it, and it's the same story. They're like, eh, it passed two months ago. <laughs> or like, <laughs> no, it's definitely like, there's a 100% chance it'll miss us, but it'll get kind of close, like a few light years or something. You're like, well, this is a complete waste of my time. But you're about to tell me i'm sure that there are higher chances of this one yeah this one's at least a little more interesting (laughs) jay on september 24th 2023 so very recently a one kilogram sample of dust and pebbles landed in utah it had been traveling about twenty-eight thousand miles per hour for the last three years carrying with it important information about a massive asteroid named Bennu. Bennu just isn't any asteroid, though, Jay. It has been dubbed the world's most hazardous asteroid. And why is that, you ask? 
Well, because as of this moment, there is a one in twenty seven hundred chance. So I mean, come it's on, better, it's better. That in exactly a hundred and fifty nine years, so that in a hundred and fifty nine years from today, Bennu could hit Earth. While one in twenty seven hundred isn't very likely, it's still more likely than finding a four leaf clover. That's one in five thousand. Or getting struck by lightning, that's one in 15,300. And it's still obviously more chance than we want to take. This is exactly why NASA launched the OSIRIS-REx mission. And the mission comes to completion, Jay, after seven long years that included, get this, a six-second stop on Bennu to collect the sample that NASA is now studying. (laughs) And that sample will help inform how or if we need to do something about the asteroid's trajectory. We need to understand exactly the composition of such asteroids if we are to deflect them out of harm's way in the future. Dr. Darren Baskill, astronomer lecturer at the University of Sussex, told BBC Science Focus, Asteroids are notoriously difficult to predict when it comes to what will happen exactly in the future. And initial reports show that we'll most likely have to wait until 2135 to know for certain what actions we may need to take to keep us from being hit by Manu. And Jay, what about if things don't look good for us in 2135? Well, that'll give scientists around 50 years to come up with the right plan to deflect the asteroid. And in 2022, NASA successfully launched the Double Asteroid Redirection Test Mission, a mission built around changing the trajectory of impending doom. So we are prepared if needed. In fact, NASA created a whole division for this. It's Planetary Defense Coordination Office in early 2016, with a mission to provide, and I quote, timely and accurate information to the government, the media, and the public on close approaches to Earth by potentially hazardous objects and any potential for impact. But what about if it were to hit Earth? Well, Bennu wouldn't totally blow up our beloved planet, but it would dent her. It's predicted that upon impact, Bennu would leave a crater about four miles wide with enough impact to completely knock down nearby cities. And we have had close calls before, Jay, as you referenced at the top, In 2019, an asteroid the size of a football field came so close that we could actually see it pass just 40,000 miles away from making contact with Earth. Whenever they announced the mission in 2022 to try to divert this asteroid, they were very much like, "Uh, we're just doing this just to test it out. Like, there's nothing, we're not in any real danger. And you could tell, like, no, they're doing this because there's something very real. Like, they're they're looking at asteroid, they're like, we should probably run some test runs on this. Uh, And uh, so you basically tell me that that's what happened. Like, ah, there's nothing going on. uh, (laughs) Nothing to see 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 here. We're just shooting an asteroid for no reason. No issue at all. Yeah, they're sweating and shaking. You're a little too beholden to Rotten Tomatoes, by the way, because I thought, okay, Don't Look Up is going to be certified fresh. And I went and looked at it. It's 55, which is, like, close to to certified fresh. But I feel like that's a little unfair. Like, 55 is really harsh. No. There's some real, like, not good movies out there getting, getting, like, 70s and 80s. Well, sure. That are just, like, cookie-cutter. Just, like, cookie-cutter movies that are just the same thing over and over again, like, in 80s. Well, you're getting awful defensive. You're getting awful defensive over this. Just not a good, just not a good movie. <laughs> and that's it. 
Thanks for listening. Don't forget to rate, subscribe, and review Commute on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast network. We're on social. Check us out on Facebook, X, and Instagram. And you can always say what up at our website, commutethepodcast.com. Music for Commute is provided by my main man, Jason Sammons. For Jason, and I'm Dave Trump. We'll see you next week. I'm going to see what he's worth really quick. <laughs> Peanut, the royal blue elephant. It, like, what do you just guess? So you think he's worth what? It's one of those things that we're gonna say brand it's worth, new. It's worth whatever somebody will pay for it. So like, what is it actually worth? It's actually worth five dollars. <laughs> but what is it worth to somebody who's like a hardcore collector? Like, it's priceless in that in that department. So I don't so, know. So you know, we've covered in the past that uh, Beanie Baby, Ty Warner, the evil genius himself. That he set the prices for his own things. He built the scarcity. Uh, <laughs> so at one point, I think I think Peanut the Royal Blue Elephant was worth like fifteen thousand. Uh, this one's forty two sixty. That, that's so absurd. Like the <laughs> coming out of your mouth, it's just like it's absurd. Forty two dollars <laughs> and sixty cents for this one, and that's I mean that's pretty expensive. <laughs> I mean, they were sold to us as stocks. They were like, if you buy this, it'll pay for your college tuition. Like, in the year 2020, this will be worth a mortgage. Ooh, like here's, your, your entire mortgage. Here's a first edition with an error on the tag. 5727. <laughs> Don't mind if I do.